here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop calls. Everybody, this is Rev Hewitt, and I am so excited about this interview because we're going to be getting into literally public health, racism, and how all of that comes together. And I'm so excited to have with me Elise Marie Tobert, who is a native of Tuskegee. I love Tuskegee, y'all. Alabama. Um, she received her BS environmental science from Tuskegee University. Shout out to all the HBCUs. And her master's of public health and environmental health sciences from Big Blue, University of Michigan. Um, Elise, how are you? Welcome to The Coolest Show. Good morning. I'm doing good. Um, I'm actually here in Tuskegee, too. So I'm on this fertile soil right now as we speak. That's what's up. So first, we, we will start, actually, we'll start there. How did it feel going to a Black college? Mm, Going to Tuskegee University was the best decision I've ever made in my life. Um, Tuskegee University is uh, an an esteemed university um, in which I was able to learn in a free space as a Black person, as a Black woman. Mm. Um, And um, I think that that being a student at Tuskegee University gave me a strong sense of not just how to be a great environmental scientist. I didn't just learn my craft, but I understood uh, myself better as a Black person. And I did so in a place around a diversity of Black people. I got to understand how different and diverse we are, but how beautiful that is as well. So I think, you know, that experience was, it was just fun. You know, Tuskegee is fun. Um, but it was also uh, really great culturally for me as a person in my in my own growth and my development. You know, when I think about Tuskegee, obviously I think about the Tuskegee uh, experiment and what they did to particularly Black people, how they experimented on them, particularly now. That has come up a lot as we discuss COVID and a lot of different people have been, you know, obviously dealing with the vaccines. How, how did that and maybe give folks a little bit of background on what that is about the Tuskegee experiment and, was, and how that played out for you and your uh, growth there at the at the school. Sure. I'll talk about how that played out for me is in my growth at the school, but just personally as well. Um, so the Tuskegee syphilis study or the U.S. syphilis study on African-American men was a study that was done for over 40 years. People don't really know that, but over mm. 40 years in which the United States government, which is now, this agency is now the Center for Disease Control, um, studied syphilis on Black men here in Macon County, Alabama, which is where Tuskegee is. And basically, as a part of that study, they watched them, they watched these men who had syphilis, uh, half of them had syphilis, half of them didn't. They watched the progression of syphilis on their body. And um, they did so at a time in which um, a treatment for syphilis became available. So there was penicillin available to treat syphilis. And um, these men, these men were, um, you know, mostly farmers and sharecroppers. Hmm. They lived in a small rural town. 
Um, many of them didn't have access to information, you know, access to understand that there was a, a treatment available. Um, and as, as a part of participation in this study, they were often promised like, you know, a free burial or uh, food or education, you know, incentives for being a part of the study, um, which seemed alluring for these men who were, again, sharecroppers, very poor people in this small rural town. Um, two of those men were my great grandfathers. Mm. So I am a descendant of that study. Um, my grandmother actually went to the White House when Bill Clinton, President Clinton, issued an apology for this study. And um, she's still living today. <laughs> and so what I try to emphasize to people, especially right now as we're having so many conversations about the legacy of medical mistrust in this country, is that when we talk about this Tuskegee syphilis study and so many other instances in which the government, our government and our own medical institutions have made decisions that were not in the best interest of black people, um, we're not talking about something that happened a thousand years ago. We're talking about instances that people can, people who are still living can recall right now. My grandmother is still living. My father, who knew his grandfather, is still living right now. And so those stories literally live on with us right now. Wow. That's an amazing story, at least. How, how, how do we as Black people then trust this government? I know you actually, because you work along with the government today, and so, but you're in a very unique position how do we? I mean, with not even with that study, obviously, what we saw with the poisoning, uh, with the water in Flint, and this, I mean, I can go, we can, I can go on and on and on. How do we, and a lot of times the initial response is, is, is that it's different now. But is it really different now? Um, Flint also wasn't a thousand years ago. And um, the ways in which COVID-19 ravaged our community wasn't a thousand years ago. That's going on right now. The vulnerabilities that have been created in our society that particularly um, disadvantage Black people and people of color, low-income people, um, are, are, are do continue now. So I, I definitely understand um, the issues of trust that uh, Black populations have. Um, it's important to, to, to develop some type of rationale for protecting yourself, you know, to survive when you have enough data that shows you that uh, institution doesn't care for you and hasn't cared for you. Um, I think that what's necessary as we continue to um, try to navigate the fact that the government still has power and authority and resources is that that institution itself must develop in a way in which it diversifies the people who are making decisions. Mm. Um, it diversifies and um, engages with constituency, con different constituents in a meaningful way that it listens to constituents. It listens to black people. It listens to the people who have been most deeply um, and abrasively impacted by different policies, plans, resource allocations, whatever. Um, I think that's the best way to build trust. And then it has to become trustworthy. Um, the medical um, system has to become trustworthy. Our government has to become trustworthy. And I think as it does so, then um, that's what will help build trust. 
Well, we need to jump right off into the deep end here. We going <laughs> let me let me swim a little bit back to the middle of the pool, <laughs> a little bit, because uh, I want I know we got your kind of your HBCU experiments. We got some of your health and uh, climate experience, but who is Elise Tobert? Okay, who is Elise Tobert? Let's see. <laughs> um, Elise Tobert is a daughter, a sister, a friend, an aunt now. And I'm also an environmental health scientist, a public health advocate, and a person who genuinely believes that people should be able to pursue their own goals, their own dreams, their own aspirations, and that barriers like the quality of their education or the quality of their environment, you know, things that people are generally not able to control shouldn't be the factors that inhibit them from doing what they want to do, from pursuing their own life's goals and dreams. And so um, I guess that's kind of made me a fighter (laughs) because I I believe that and I see that there are barriers. And um, I've equipped myself as an organizer, as a scientist, and as an advocate to bring people together um, to push for the types of uh, society that they want to see a healthier place to live, thrive, and grow. Hmm. How do you define thriving? And what is necessary for Black people to thrive? And how is your work ensuring this? You took me back to the deep end. <laughs> I know. Listen, this is the coolest show. We 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 go from the we 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 wade in the shallow end for a quick second, and then we go right back to that high diving board. <laughs> okay, you took my took me back to the deep end. But what does it mean to thrive? I think to thrive means uh, for me, I, I I take it to a spiritual a spiritual level. Mm. Um, we are all ordained with a purpose with a reason to live here and be here on this earth. And I think thriving is being able to walk in our purpose. Um, You know, if just kind of, you know, thinking about environmental exposures, if someone is exposed with lead at a heavy level when they are young in their developmental stages, um, that uh, lead exposure inhibits that person's uh, development, their brain development, um, their body development, their bone development. And because of that, that person is not as able to do what they would have naturally done had they not had that negative exposure, right? So for me, thriving looks like being able to live and work in harmony to pursue one's purpose, one's reason for being here in a way in which they can experience their highest level of self. And if we all as individuals are able to experience our highest level of self, if society is structured in a way in which we can do that, um, for me, that's what I envision as thriving. Hmm. Well, since we're down here in the deep and let's just stay here, uh, what does it mean to call racism a public health crisis? To call racism a public health crisis is to name a thing a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very important that we that we that we are able to identify an issue to to start to rectify that issue. And for so long, we've been able to conduct studies in public health that have showed that so many health indicate that the the strongest indicator of health is race. For instance, in the environmental field, we know that 
the race is the strongest indicator of whether someone will live in close proximity in close proximity to a hazardous facility. We've seen that race, for instance, is the strongest indicator of whether someone will have um, issues and complications with birthing and pregnancy in the United States. We've seen that race is the strongest indicator of diabetes and cardiovascular disease, so many other public health um, indicators. And so I think that calling race a public health crisis is, is naming a thing a thing, and it gives us the opportunity to start addressing it as such, um, because race is really um, one of the foundational um, uh, components uh, that impacts the social determinants of health, that impacts how we uh, experience education, employment, um, opportunity, things of that sort. You know, Lisa, as I've been doing this work, one of the things that I've realized is we have a tendency to give those who pollute our communities a pass not necessarily pass on the pollution. We want to hold them accountable for that, but more so on the intent of the pollution. And so when you say, for instance, that we live close to these uh, polluting facilities, petrochemical companies, people putting lead into poison, and it just so happens that we live near them and they're causing us to have asthma and emphysema, cancer and diabetes, um, you know, we, we know that they knew this going into the process. And so as you are dealing with this, as you're saying, call a thing a thing, should we also call a thing a thing genocide? When people know what they're doing is going to kill people, how does, should we call a thing a thing in that regard as well? Yeah, uh, you know, I think our society is so uh, hesitant to use to, to use words like genocide, right? But but it is. Um, we're not ignorant as a society. We have really advanced in our society, in our science, in our ability to determine the fate of chemicals on the body, on the environment, on um, you know the legacy of chemicals, and so. Our companies, as they're citing themselves in our communities, actually do know the harm that their emissions or their chemicals uh, will cause on a community and on the environment. And the fact that they've been allowed to permit uh, permitted to operate in those communities and those places, you know, and in excess often, it, it really is genocide. It really is the slow killing <laughs> of particular people. So, um, you know, I, I don't know how much appetite our society will have to adopt that type of term, um, but, but that is what it is. It is the killing of particular people in, um, it, it is premeditated because, because we do have the science that tells us um, what will happen if someone is exposed at a certain level to a certain polluting. You're, 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 you're answering these questions in such a great way, and thank you for that. Um, and I just want to follow up with that, because I think that leads me now to this thought of 
you know, how we started this conversation in regards to the Tuskegee experiment. We, we went from there into how race um, and how it plays as a public health crisis. We then kind of have moved to literally knowing and, you know, that folks are doing this intentionally, in essence, creating genocide against communities or creating their lives to be harder. Um, and you also mentioned earlier about purpose and thriving. And I bring all this together because we as a people, and I say we, meaning black people, are very strong people, very spiritual, have overcome so much. And sometimes we block out what racism does to us. We, we, we in essence, this, we, we know that, um, you know, Aunt May got breast cancer. We know that little baby Sue had asthma. We, 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 we heard about our, our, our men intentionally getting syphilis. That, uh, uh, what is the cost or harm of black people having just a tolerance for racial trauma? Mm. That's a deep question. That is a deep question because it has been, um, it has been the one thing that has gotten us through in this country. <laughs> and also it has been deeply to our detriment. Um, black people are incredibly resilient. Um, we have created culture in the face of trauma. We've created some of the greatest music, some of the greatest art from our trauma. Um, but one of the public health costs of that shows up in our mental health. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Mm. And it's a month in which we pause to really think about the ways in which, you know, our experiences um, take a toll on our mental and emotional health. And what studies have shown so far is that um, Black women actually are more likely to have dementia as a result of their either experiences with racism or hardship in life. And that is one physical, literal way in which our resilience, our ability to just kind of push and persevere through, um, though we you know, may seem like we're still laughing it off and that it's water on our backs, um, it, it actually does take a, a, a mental toll over time um, that we, you know, work so hard that we continue to be so strong. And um, I've, I've experienced that, you know, with people in my family who have actually uh, older people who have had dementia um, as a result of um, possibly, I know these people were hard workers. I know these people have suffered a number of traumas over the years and continue to persevere through. So, that that is the toll. No, and, and and that's real. I mean, when I think about that, I just think about. I mean, I'm I'm also I'm also from the south as well, and so I know how we do, as we would say. We 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 almost allow it to happen in our. Cause we almost got so much going on, right? It's almost like we, almost like we 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 deal what we can deal with, and it's it's, it's a strength in that. But it's also just a way that we almost allow for that to continue. And we're seeing that, particularly now with, with COVID. I, I know if, you, if you're dealing with public health and climate and racism, and you're now seeing COVID-19, <laughs> um, uh, it must just be like, you must be just, be just spinning 
as you're looking at how all these things impact our community? Yeah, that's interesting. I have been spinning. <laughs> I've been spinning because um, I, I sit at an interesting nexus. Uh, most of my work is on a national scale. And so as a public health person, I look at systems and I organize on a national scale on, on climate um, and on climate advocacy and to get climate policy. Um, but I live locally, as we all do. And so I also witness that um, though I'm advocating for, you know, XYZ investments and XYZ protections and XYZ recovery and relief and all of those types of, you know, packages and, you know, things that we want our government to pass. Um, I, I live locally and I see that until I, I live in a community that is 99% Black. Um, it's still a lower income community. Um, we don't have a- adequate access to uh, grocery stores or to um, active transportation like sidewalks and places to bike and parks and places to just go relieve our stress. Um, you know, we we still have some infrastructure that's pretty inadequate, you know, water infrastructure, road infrastructure. And so as I'm advocating for um, uh uh, relief at the national level, and I see a need for it for our nation, I wonder, is my community even positioned to receive these benefits? Mm. You know, will these benefits actually come to my community? So I'm trying to like help the nation and I'm trying to help my community and then help my family. And so literally for myself, you know, I find myself pretty stretched, um, in, in, in identifying and seeing and trying to advocate and work against and for all of the dif- these different levels of systems that have to be improved and are maintained. Um, I'm, I, am, I do this, as you know. Um, I'm here, thankful for all those listening to The Coolest Show. We appreciate you making this a great uh, form and platform. But I'm also, as you know, um, a minister. And uh, being a minister in these times can be can be pulling, as you mentioned, it can be stretched, and you have to kind of pull in your faith as a public health and someone who deals with climate, environmental justice. I'm curious to hear your thoughts because you kind of touched on a little bit. Because as a black woman, how does the intersection of not only with COVID, the pandemic? but obviously pollution, uh, poverty, and police brutality pull on you personally. Like, how do you maintain, like, your your ability to, to do all this good work and sometimes around communities who don't look like you? Uh, you know who, you know, wanna, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say they, uh, you know, they were like, uh, well, you know, uh, for the folks who know, everybody know who know, know what I'm saying. <laughs> and, and and so, how does how do you deal with all of that? And and I guess I'm gonna bring that. I'm gonna come back to I'm gonna come back to the COVID and the pandemic. But I want you to just to connect all those pieces first, and, uh, and uh, regarding your health in this process. Okay. Well, I've had to. Well, last year started to drive me crazy. <laughs> And I didn't want to say that, but truthfully, it did. That just started to drive me crazy because, um, 
I work within, uh, you know, the big environmental green community. And there were a number of very public letters that came out last year just about how, um, you know, the toll of organizing on on black people on black bodies and black employees and people of color and how um, during the shift of working from home, you know, uh, about like how quickly we started to work from home and just, you know, had to make really, really quick shifts. I also run a nonprofit, uh, Next Step Up, where we provide mentoring and tutoring to high school students locally in Tuskegee um, that I've been running for the past 11 years. And so I was trying to shift my national work. I was shifting my local work since students were now um, taking school from home. Um, and then, of course, you know, there was um, there was um, the, the just murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor um, at the same time. And um, it, it was a lot. It really was a lot working and thinking about how these murders influenced just my life. Um, and the fact that that could have been me, any of those mm. murders could have been me very, very easily. And just, you know, what is the value of my life to others? You know, um, it's something I started to think about. But a few things I did that helped me were that I had to reckon with the fact that I can't, I couldn't just keep going and I would take days off. Like I just had to take breaks. The other thing I did was I would um, just have a little escape. I started running and walking. I would do like three to five miles a day, which is actually good. And the other thing I would do is dance. I love to dance. And um, I talk about the importance of the arts on our culture because art has often been such an important and strong outlet for us culturally. And um, I've definitely used it from, you know, some of the deepest trap songs. You know, sometimes you just got to get gangster. You really do just got to get gangster, okay? Well, listen. <laughs> To, um, you know, to my gospel songs, my reggae, Jamaican music. Um, so all that, all that, you know, has helped me get through. Oh, well, well I, I'm with all that. You know, this is, you, we, we believe in using culture mm-hmm. as a mechanism to keep you sane uh, in this process. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, will our community received the benefits here in the U.S. Um, in regards to COVID. You were talking about earlier around that and the, the trusting the process. So what is happening with public health in regards to COVID with the African diaspora? Countries in the global south are receiving vaccines that are rejected in the global north. And how does this add to the narrative where illustrating that's there's a genocide on black people, not just in the U.S., but globally. Um, there's a mistrust in governments and public health everywhere uh, around this world due to this history. What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Yeah, I, I just see history repeating itself. <laughs> Um, I, I'm not, uh, I, I, can't, I can't give the most informed opinion on this as it relates to the vaccine, but um, I have found it um, interesting and damning that there are vaccines uh, that have not been approved in the United States, 
um, that are approved in other countries. And that, um, you know, those are going into people's bodies um, and that people then have to trust them, trust their efficacy and make decisions based on um, based on the efficacy. So, for instance, they take off their masks, they go around their family members. And, and if they don't work, then they could likely potentially um, continue the spread of COVID-19, of this disease, this virus that has already has such a um, damaging impact on their country. So I think that, um, you know, right now our country is saying that we're going to pass on, we have an excess of vaccines, actually, an excess of one of of the vaccines that are considered to be highly effective, um, which also speaks deeply to the ways in which the United States and other uh, westernized countries have held in excess of all types of resources. Um, But um, we're starting to send a few million to other countries. Um, But um, yeah, it definitely is. I I definitely think it's history repeating itself. It will definitely have an impact. Um, I think we'll begin to actually see the impact even more. We're looking at India right now, but we'll see it even more in other countries in a matter of perhaps weeks honestly, mm. you know, with the spread of this virus. So, um, no, thank you for that. Yeah. No, and, and, I, and I appreciate the response. Let me bring it back home a little bit for you. Uh, as the founder of Next Step Up, tell us uh, what do you think are the important um, points or connections between climate activism and public health? Youth. Youth, 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 youth. Say it loud for the folks in the back of the room. Youth. Next Step Up engages youth. Uh, We are considered an organization that provides mentoring and tutoring. That's our core. But what we really do is we develop youth. All of our, all of our, um, all of our organization is led by Tuskegee University students. They take leadership positions and they run the organization. They kind of mm. do my job for me. And we work with high school students and we don't only get the students engaged in academics, but we help prepare them for their next steps. And we get them deeply involved in the affairs of the community. So right now we're starting something that we call the Macon County Youth Council, which is a representative form of government for youth aged 13 through 35. Mm. We're going to have our youth in Macon County deeply engaged in determining the new vision for the city and um, in working together in unison in representing at the city council and the county commissioner level and at all levels. And so um as I think about climate, you know, climate, solving climate is really improving every function and facet of how we live. It is thinking about how we do zoning. It is thinking about the decisions we're making for the types of materials that we're going to use for our roads and sidewalks going forward. It's thinking about how we um, design and develop our buildings and our houses. Um, so the decisions that we make at a um, at a municipal level are really climate decisions at the state level, at the national level. They're all climate decisions. And right now, um, particularly in black, you know, in, in black towns and places from my experience, we have a lot of older people who will likely not be here in 50 years making the decisions. 
And I think that the people who know they will be here in 50 years from now are really keen to ensuring that we are making decisions that are sustainable, that will ensure that we have a, a city, a town, a state, a world that is conducive for living 50 and 100 and perhaps 1,000 years from now. So I strongly believe in youth development and youth engagement and supporting and sustaining youth-led initiatives, um, intergenerational youth-led elder-guided initiatives um, for addressing the climate crisis, both locally, nationally, and globally. Do you see your work um, taking root and hold within our community? Yeah, I think there's a greater awareness of the need to address climate change, you know, amongst the general population in the United States. Uh, Polls have shown that this is a pressing problem, not for the future, but for the now. And I think that, um, you know, that people anecdotally say that Black people don't care about climate change, but we know that it's hot. You know, Mm -hmm. we see these storms, we see these fires. We're looking at, at, you know, the the bad actors and saying, you know, you caused this. (laughs) Um, Perhaps not feeling as empowered uh, individually to make a change in this on this issue, but definitely knowing that it exists. I think the next level uh, after, you know, understanding and acknowledgement is empowerment, is presenting to people options and ways in which they can engage as individuals and as a collective to to make a change, you know, and um, and is in developing power because we've we've had so many movements, you know, deeply how many movements we've had, how many fights we've fought that um, we fought uh, powerfully, but in which we've we've been, you know, kind of stumped down. I've been to Alabama Department of Environmental Management too many times where they just take our item off the agenda. Okay. Mm. (laughs) Um, So it's it's also in developing that, empowering people and in in developing uh, levels of power so that we can impact and influence decisions for our lives. Let me ask you a question on that one. You know, I am so encouraged by you, and I hope people who are listening are saying are feeling the same way um, as they listen to you right now. But I'm also encouraged by some of your other folks from Alabama, like Catherine Coleman Flowers, um, and many others. And, I, and I'm seeing a pattern here that when I think of the environmental movement, not in, not, not EJ movement, um, but when I think about the environmental movement, it seems like there's just something that's missing in which you have these strong black, particularly black women from Alabama in the heart of one of the reddest states in our country, which has a history of the Klan and everything else, standing up and connecting the dots. But you don't hear that. It's it's an add-on. You don't you hear mostly about what's going on in Vermont or in California or maybe in other parts of the world. But you don't you don't hear this. And this to me is the thing that will help us. Like I will say, frankly, I don't think we can have we can solve the climate crisis until we deal with the liberation of black people in this country. And uh, I just think that you are doing that just in a way that you're just doing that. 
But why aren't people hearing about your work from the standpoint? I mean, obviously they're hearing about your work, they see you, but you know what I mean? Like the larger climate movement. What's happening when you have to fight through that layer just to be heard? Put me on stage. <laughs> we got you. That's what we're doing right now. Look, I'll right. talk. I'll talk. I'll talk. I'll talk. I'm happy to talk. I'm happy to talk because I, the reason I found a next step up is because I genuinely believe that education is a route to improvement. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm happy to talk on a stage to, you know, a thousand public health people is because I actually believe that if I don't believe that we can only talk about it and then somehow fix it. You know, if that were the case, then the many brilliant men and women who have come before me would have fixed the problem. Um, But I do believe that that is a step in the process of naming and figuring out the problem. And that I do believe we need fresh people with real fresh perspective to, um, to start addressing the problems. And um, yeah, you know, we, we've, we've been recycling some of the same people for so long um, to talk about the problems, but we haven't made uh, the types of gains that we need. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly why. I, I don't, I don't know exactly why, you know, also perhaps the media markets from Alabama aren't, you know, the ones that are getting picked up as much nationally. I really don't know. Um, yeah, but, but they pick up, you know, they pick up Burlington, Vermont. So I ain't going for yeah. that one either. True, 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 true. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't really know the, 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 the reason for this, but I, I can definitely say I'm, I'm available. I'm interested. I'm open. So if someone wants to talk, I'm open to talking. You heard it right here. Well, I can say, I, I, I'm older than you, so I can say a little bit. I can say this right now, that uh, we need to put um, these voices like Elise and others up front to talk about it right now. Um, and that's important because they are not only the future, they are the now. And I just wanted to say that out so people who listen can put that down and we're going to get to how they can find you a little bit <laughs> in a second. Uh, what do campaigns that take public and environmental health into account look like? A campaign that takes public and environmental health into, um, into, into consideration center those. And to do, to do their work effectively, they center them from the perspective of the people who have the most marginalized, and marginalized is a verb. I always try to say that it's a verb, mm. it's not a noun. It's like, I'm not, you know, um, I, I, I don't happen to be marginalized. Like it is, it happened to me, but it, t- it centers the voices of those who have been most marginalized um, and the experience of whatever environmental or public health issue you're trying to address. Um, it centers those voices, those people's, those lived experiences. And so, um, you know, I think that in terms of taking a public health approach, we just have to, the foundation of public health is social determinants of health. It's looking at the ways in which education, housing, um, employment, um, our environment, all of these different factors that influence our health um, do so. And um, addressing all of those such that we can live healthier lives. And, and I try to say this to people often because um, 
I think that we can get so caught up in individual experience that we think that, you know, I have diabetes because I have diabetes. I've done something bad. I've done something wrong. Or I have, you know, this issue with poverty because I didn't try hard enough. But I have to tell people I have this issue with my student loans, you know, such that I'm not able to buy a house, a wealth building lever because I, you know, I'm just not making enough money. But what I really want people to understand is that if you plus two million other people are having this issue, then the issue is not you. It is that the system was designed for you to have this outcome or it was designed for 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 two million people to have this outcome. So it just happens to be you, but it could have happened to be someone else, too. And um, that is that's the recognition that I really hope people have is that we can start connecting the dots and knowing that. Our individual experiences are just a manifestation of the larger design of our society. And that if we want our personal experiences to be different, then the the design of society has to be different. Elise, I want to give you this last. I have a few more questions, but I actually want to shift that around. I want to give you this time to say what you want to say. You know, uh, I want folks to hear from you. What, What do you want? We have a a large audience. What do you want to talk about and end as we, as we end this interview? I would say that, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, at the beginning of all of the uprising for black lives, affirming that black lives matter, black lives are beautiful, black lives are powerful. um, That the biggest realization that I had is that, we need places in which Black people can live and can thrive and can enjoy themselves. And um, I think we have places, you know, case studies that we can develop in a sense, places that are opportunities to, 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 to test that out. Um, I think Tuskegee is ground zero for that. I think mm-hmm. this is really fertile soil to develop a environmentally sustainable city, a place that, you know, recycles its energy, a place that um, is built on greenness, a place in which people can have um, employment opportunities in which they can pursue their own purpose and their own skills and their own interests and their own talents, a place in which people can recreate in ways that are fun and enjoyable and exciting. Um, I really believe that this is this is ground zero. This is where the revolution can happen. And um, I would encourage people that if you are interested in seeing that kind of place that people sometimes call Wakanda, <laughs> that you could, could see, see that in Tuskegee, you know, talk to me about seeing that here. Um, I think, you know, this is where we can come up with some of the solutions to climate change. And I believe that because this is where George Washington Carver revolutionized agriculture for the entire world. It's where Booker T. Washington created an economic development model for Black people, for the South, not only, you know, for the United States, but really for the world. It influenced Marcus Garvey, influenced so many others. And so... um, I say, you know, come back to Tuskegee. <laughs> mm. That is, that's the message, you know, and I don't know if that resonates with everyone, but this is where Black people revolutionized aviation for the entire world, where the Tuskegee Airmen did their work. This is where Rosa Parks was born. 
someone who revolutionized the civil rights movement. It's actually the birthplace of the civil rights movement that a lot of people don't know. It actually started here. We protested our businesses before they did in Montgomery or Selma. And um, yeah, it's it's really the birthplace of so much. It's fertile soil, it's fertile land, um, blue skies. And it's, it's the place where the revolution can happen. So I say come back to Tuskegee. And if well, you want to do so, contact me. There it is. No, no, no. Well, before we get how folks can support you and get your contact, I do have one last question for you. Um, mm-hmm. I'll actually, this is this is a fun question for me. It may, hopefully, it's fun for you. I don't. We'll we'll we'll, we'll quickly find out. I'm, we'll see. Um, I want to give you a superpower. We talked we talk a little bit about Wakanda, and so I want to give you a superpower that you have, which is only it's a one time. Power. In other words, you can only use it one time. And this is the power I'm giving you. When you go to bed, you have the ability to clap away either the climate crisis or white supremacy. You go, you just you do that clap, and one of those is gone. One will remain, and one is gone. You have that power to either get rid of white supremacy, and it's gone or the climate crisis, and it's gone. And nobody next morning is going to know. They're just going to know it's gone. Which one will you type away? Mm, I thought about this in a shallow way, and then I thought about it deeply. <laughs> um, let's see. Let me go to sleep. White supremacy is gone. White supremacy is gone. Mm. The earth is better. The climate crisis is solved because we're not extracting from the earth in a way in which we think that we can just own the earth. It's all better. Okay. It's all better. <laughs> so that is, that is the thing that I think that we should get rid of. Mm. That's the thing that we should get rid of. That's powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How can folks support your work and how can they find you? Um, you can find me online. I have social media, Instagram. I'm Elise Marie. Um, Elise Marie TU on Instagram. I am Elise Marie on Facebook. I am Tuskegee Next Step Up at gmail.com. I am Next Step Up on Instagram and Facebook. And our website is nextstepup.org. So if you'd like to get in contact with me, hit me up on Instagram, Elise Marie TU, Facebook, Elise Marie, or by email at tuskegeenextstepup at gmail.com. Ah, thank you, Elise. And and for all those listening, please come back home to Tuskegee. I'm I'm a listen, I I, I gotta find my way there, uh that way uh to get there. Um do you, I guess in this last piece, is there any uh need or support or anything like that regard at, at Next Up, I'm going to be specific to folks. Is there anything that you need right now for the folks listening? Uh, yeah, we really want to grow, especially as we see a, a need for youth development in the South. You know, what Stacey Abrams did in Georgia was so great by empowering people to get out to vote, right, and changing the state. We can do that in Alabama. And it starts with developing the youth. So our Macon County Youth Council is new. We're developing. And we could definitely use your support. 
um, there's a donate button on our Next Step Up organizational website. It's nextstepup.org. And uh, if you feel so compelled to invest in the future, invest in, um, you know, these young people's lives, then we could definitely use your support. And that is our guest today. She is the fabulous Elise Tobert, founder and executive director of Next Step Up. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.